it's really important to be flexible and take every day as special. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Connecting ALS. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Holden, joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Jessica Chapman. Jessica, nice to see you this week. Hey, Jeremy. It's always a pleasure to see you. Ah, it's so kind of you to say. Really, again, always looking forward to our conversations, uh, not just with ourselves, but with the amazing people that we get to talk to week in and week out. Uh, before we get into that, Jessica, I'm curious, who is your all-time favorite Family Feud host? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I would have to say Louis Anderson. I Louis Anderson. Yes, I know. Not a co- not a host for very long, but I just think he's hilarious. Uh, the the kind of the dark horse pick. I like it. I'll go with it. Well, <laughs> Family Feud has been on my mind uh, as we prepared for this week's episode because this week we are all about survey research. Yes, absolutely. Uh, actually, this week we're talking about ALS Focus. It's a patient and caregiver-led survey program that asks people with ALS and their current and past caregivers about their own unique needs and challenges in fighting the disease. And the goal is to learn as much as possible about the individual experiences throughout the disease journey so that the whole ALS community can benefit. Yeah, we have results from the second ALS focus survey. Uh, for folks who want to learn more about the first survey, uh, you can listen to a previous episode, which we will share in the show notes. This time we focused specifically on caregiver needs. Some top level findings from that that we learned, 68% of respondents said that they spend more than 30 hours a week providing care. And about half of caregivers participating in that survey said they felt unprepared for changes in caregiver responsibilities as ALS progresses. But I don't want to give it all away. We should let our guests do that this week. Absolutely. Yeah. To provide more context and color around this, we did have a chance to chat with Sarah Provanta, Director of ALS Focus, and Michael Trainer, a member of the ALS Focus Patient and Caregiver Advisory Committee, who became a caregiver for his wife after her ALS diagnosis. Yeah, always excited to have the folks from Focus on to talk about what they learned and how it's going to help inform the work going forward. So why don't we get out of the way and find out what the survey says? Dr. Parvanta, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, we're very excited. We always uh, enjoy having you on the show. And, you know, big news to unpack. The uh, results of the second ALS Focus survey are out. The numbers have been crunched. This one, as we talked about last time you were with us, uh, was around caregiver needs and, and caregiver concerns. So, Dr. Parvanta, what did we learn? What, what are the big takeaways uh, from survey number two? Yes, I think there are a couple of key takeaways here that both illustrate the problems and concerns that exist and also some ways to address them. So I'm really glad that we have a, a set of results that are we can take some action around. So I will go through some of those now. That sounds great. Well, first off, we want to know who participated in this survey we did have over 600 participants, which is our largest survey yet. Oh, that's and great. Part- yeah, it was very exciting to see. Uh, we had both current caregivers and caregivers who uh, were caring for people with ALS in the past. And so we got different perspectives uh, from those two different groups. In addition to that, ALS focus overall grew by about 1,000 people. Wow. 
So this program is starting to gain a foothold and through that kind of participation, we can have an even greater impact using these kind of uh, systematic and scientific results. For this particular survey, one of the key questions that we asked was how much time were caregivers spending providing care? And we found that nearly 70% of our survey respondents were spending more than 30 hours a week providing care. Wow, that's a full-time job. It was huge. I was not expecting to see that high of a number and even beyond that number, nearly all respondents were spending at least a part-time career, if not a full-time career's worth of time providing care. So that really drives home. I, I'm sure so many people listening at home wouldn't be surprised by that. They feel that, but to just know, to be able to have those numbers and look at it and, and just see the amount of time, the volume of time, the commitment done out of care, but the commitment that caregivers provide. That's exactly right. I think we hear about these kinds of experiences anecdotally every day. And these are numbers from large groups of people that back that up. Sure. We also asked caregivers about their top concerns in their roles. And we asked both current caregivers and past caregivers these questions. And we listed out a set of concerns using measures that actually we get from other published literature. So these are measures that we can really rely on in terms of being valid and reflecting the set of concerns that might be possible. Mm. And what we found was a majority of caregivers said that a top concern was their family and their loved one's emotional and physical well-being. So that really stood out to me because of all of the concerns that they could have selected, they were thinking about other people first. Even with all the time they spend providing care, everything that they do, they are always thinking about the people around them. It's a powerful finding. And, and again, as you said earlier, Dr. Provenza, we, we hear those reports anecdotally, but then to just see a systematic measure that this is the overriding concern of caregivers, it's, it's important to see the numbers that, that prove the point. Yes, exactly. There were some other concerns that rose to the top of the list because we did ask caregivers to tell us their top five concerns. So some of the other concerns that we found was that a lack of time to relax or engage in self-care really rose to the top in terms of concerns and also being able to engage in activities that they enjoy. So they were concerned about losing the time that they would need to do that, which I think is really valid. Um, Being able to engage with the world, uh, do things that you enjoy, all contributes to quality of life. And caregivers' quality of life is equally important as the quality of life of the person living with ALS. And what I have heard in conversations with our patient and caregiver advisory committee is that the people with ALS, are they're concerned about their caregivers as well. They realize how much their caregivers do and they want their caregivers' lives to have quality and have happiness and joy and engagement 
just as much as one would want that for themselves. Dr. Pravanta, going back to the committee, how did the committee decide to focus on caregiver needs? And also, how was the decision process around the questions that were posed in this survey? What did that look like? In addition to our patient and caregiver advisory committee, we also consult with a steering committee of um, academics and experts from the Centers for Disease Control, the Food and Drug Administration, and pharmaceutical industry sponsors. So we, we really poll a lot of important stakeholders. And then our patient and caregiver advisory committee has um, a really strong say in the direction that we take because they have this lived experience and they kind of know what are the most pressing issues that that we need to get to next. There are a million surveys we can do and we wanna do all of them, but how do we prioritize? So the caregiver needs survey, it emerged after we had conducted a couple of surveys for people with ALS, really focusing on the needs and experiences of uh, someone living with this disease. And we decided let's shift and start hearing from caregivers about their own experiences. Their experiences matter to the experience of the person that they care for. So that was our opportunity. And it actually, at the time, was aligned with Caregiver Appreciation Month and uh, some of the activities that the association was carrying out related to that. So that helped inspire uh, this survey topic as well. During that process, I also really was inspired by our industry sponsors who clearly understood how important caregivers are. And they um, even referred to caregivers as stakeholders in the clinical trial research process. They are part of these research studies just as much as a person with ALS is. So um, our industry sponsors even coming from the clinical trial side, offered a lot of advice on the kinds of measures that we chose. So that leads into your second question. How did we select these measures? We wanted to select highly actionable measures. So rather than asking questions that we thought would be interesting to know the answer, we wanted questions that once we had an answer, it could help drive actions that we take on the care services side, on the types of programs that are offered to help caregivers in their roles. And on top of that, caregiver quality of life is hugely important. And so we did wanna ask some questions about their concerns and so that we're sensitive to the the issues that they are thinking about on the day-to-day basis. Programs are certainly very helpful and important, but we also want to take actions that can help the person as well, help them live their best life as well. One of the questions that we had in the survey asked about preparedness and how prepared caregivers felt for the changes that are ahead as the ALS of the person they care for progresses. And that question was directly, it came directly from two members of our patient and caregiver advisory committee, one with ALS and the other was their partner and caretaker. And they said, you know, one thing that we were unsure about was what's 
in the future, what's coming up. I might know what I need to do right now, but what is coming up in the future? So we did, we asked current caregivers how prepared they felt for the, ch the changes that lie ahead in their caregiving responsibilities. And what we found was that about half of caregivers felt unprepared for those, those changes. So half of, half of them did feel prepared, but that's a large group of people who feel unprepared. And that informs us on the programs that we provide, not only give them the tools that they need today, but also the tools that they need for planning ahead. Such an important point that the data doesn't live in a vacuum. It's designed to help us understand what the problem is and then design solutions to the problems that we've been able to identify through quantitative measures. Yes. So I think that some of those results that we've started talking about really helped to outline the problem. And then we had questions that help us to outline solutions. So one of the main questions we wanted to ask in this survey was about the top programs that caregivers use and caregivers say that they need. Um, there are a lot of programs out there. Some people might be using them, but how do those programs shake out, I would say, in terms of the ones that are needed most and then the ones that maybe are needed slightly less? If you were thinking about directing a plan for the kinds of programs that we provide, which ones might be the ones that we address first? So what, what we did was we shared a list of 24 different programs and trainings that are available for caregivers. And this list took a long time to develop. We worked with our care services team to create an initial draft of the list and then we presented that to our patient and caregiver advisory committee and really fine-tuned it to cover needs that we didn't have on the initial list. And, and our committee said, these are important needs that we deal with every day, and we need tools and programs and trainings to deal with those issues. So let's make sure we add those kinds of tools to this list. What we found was that the most highly used and highly needed program was home visits from nurses and occupational or physical therapists. Yeah, that makes sense. It does. And I have heard this in other meetings, other conversations. And again, this is tying data to that. So over 50% of caregivers said that that was their most highly used program. And then it was in terms of asking them what are the top five programs that rose to the top of the list. Interestingly, uh, not as many caregivers said that they used trainings on general caregiving, which included activities like how to assist with transfers, um, activities of daily living, tracheotomy care. So fewer caregivers said that they used that, but that one ranked second in terms of uh, the most needed program. So maybe that is suggesting that we need to find a way to allow more caregivers to use that program because it is so highly needed. So right. it shows where there might be a need and also the impact of that need. If it, if it really is important and matters a lot to caregivers, it could have a huge impact on the roles that they play in their, their own lives. Sure. So 
we had some other top programs as well because we did ask about top five. So the other programs that fell into the top five were equipment loan programs and multidisciplinary ALS clinics. All of these count as programs, and these are programs not only that benefit the person with ALS, but they benefit the caregiver as well. They help a caregiver in their role having that multidisciplinary clinic and having that access to the types of equipment that uh, the person that they care for needs. And then finally, um, support groups for caregivers ranked highly and nearly 40% of caregivers said they were using these support groups. Wow. That makes sense going back to your, your point earlier regarding the, the concern and well-being of people being able to engage in the world, especially our caregivers, of course, right? Having that social network. So the fact that they rely so heavily on support groups that, again, anecdotally, logically, we know this, but now we have the data behind that. A support group maybe is a small way that can have a program that can have such a big impact. So mm. we, we not only want to create the big programs the small programs can make an impact too. Yeah, powerful uh, evidence of that, uh, certainly with the support groups. And again, one that we hear mentioned so frequently about a real value add anecdotally that we hear about. Uh, Dr. Parvant, I know we've talked on this show a lot in the last year about virtual focus groups, about virtual home visits, of course, with everybody dealing with quarantine and, and the COVID pandemic. Uh, and that, of course, dovetails nicely into the survey that is currently in the field. What can you tell us about survey number three and, and the focus on telehealth? Yes, we have a telehealth survey that's currently running, and that survey uh, shifts back uh, to asking people with ALS about their telehealth experiences. We also are asking current caregivers to tell us about the telehealth experiences of the people that they care for. And what we wanted to know here was who's using telehealth? How has it been used during the pandemic? What has worked well? What hasn't worked well? So I would say it's it's not a survey just to say the, the great things about telehealth and the benefits it can offer, but also to get a sense for where can we improve telehealth services, maybe policy around telehealth. These kinds of numbers, again, can um, help to guide us, provide a roadmap for where we are improving this really important and kind of newly widespread service that's available to people with ALS. Dr. Pervanta, regarding the, the data that's being collected, and I believe you've actually said this before on a, a previous episode, but for new listeners, how are we using this data? How are we sharing this data? And how are we protecting the privacy of those people who are giving their responses? What does that look like? Yes, I think I'll start with the, the last question that you had, because that informs all of the other ones. First of all, protecting participant privacy is foundational to this research that we're doing. Every participant who signs up creates a global unique identifier. And this is basically a code of random letters and numbers that becomes the person's label in the survey. So any responses that they give are labeled with that random series of numbers and letters. We're never attaching their name or any other identifying information to the responses that they provide. This is standard practice in 
IRB approved research, meaning institutional review board that oversees ethical research with people. And so that's guiding the way that we protect our participant data. So because of that, and because data are what we call de-identified, we can then share the data files with other researchers. So they can use ALS-focused data to conduct even more types of analyses and drill down to more specific questions about caregiver needs, about the use of telehealth. What is relevant to the research that others in the ALS community are doing that our data can help with? And I think what we're trying to do with ALS Focus is reduce a barrier to data from people with ALS, open the doors to collaboration across researchers, and allow one data file to have more, even more of an impact just because more people could use that data for their research. And then I think your third question was, how are we using this data? And uh, to tie back to the caregiver needs results, we have um, shared some of the results that I've uh, talked about here today. Uh, we've shared those results with the association's care services leads and with our chapters and, and ask them, how can this data serve you? What kinds of questions do you have? Are there any other kinds of questions that I could help answer for you using these data? So you can think of it like the survey responses becoming a roadmap to improving ALS care. And so that's why participating in ALS Focus can have such an important impact. We have power in these numbers, they can speak volumes, and we want to use the results to create action now, and then we want to share these results so others can create action moving into the future. And we will be sure to share uh, opportunities for folks to participate and sign up for Focus in the show notes. Dr. Parvanta, before we let we go about uh, your busy day, are there any closing thoughts that you wanted to share about the caregiver data or about future topics that Focus is going to dig into? Yes, I always want to take the opportunity to let people know, people with ALS, current caregivers, past caregivers, ALS Focus is always open even if the caregiver needs survey that I talked about today has closed, there are other surveys that are available. And so someone can register at any time from their own home. Uh, they can go to the ALS Focus website, read more about it, and then sign up if they want to participate. We have new surveys coming out all the time. And each of those survey topics, as I explained, is informed by people living with ALS and their caregivers, people with this lived experience who are saying, this is what's important to us. And now we wanna conduct a survey so that we can gather a lot of feedback from members of this important community and make sure that their experiences drive how we affect research policy and care moving forward. So I think, I think the main takeaway here is we have these results now, we'll be doing more with these results, and ALS focus continues. We're, we're continuing to grow and we're continuing to put out surveys that the community has said are important to them. 
Dr. Pavanta, thank you so much. It, you're clearly very passionate about this. And I do think this is a really unique program and something that's long been needed. So I'm excited how all these stakeholders are able to come together and make this possible. So thank you so much for your time today. It was a true pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. It, it's been great to be here. I'm so glad for the chance to be able to share these results and get people interested in this program. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for allowing me to uh, talk a little bit about my experience and journey uh, with ALS. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're excited to get into some of the granular details about the ALS focus, which, you know, we're grateful for your your work on. But why don't you start off and just introduce yourself to listeners and, and tell us a little bit about your connection with ALS. Well, unfortunately, I am one of the people that experienced the journey. Uh, my wife, in the summer of 16, we were walking on Cape May Beach, and everything was uh, wonderful, all things considered. And then uh, come September, she's, she was a kindergarten teacher, and she just started to drag her foot a little bit. We didn't think anything of it, but it continued to uh, you know, kind of annoy her for parts of three weeks. And then in October, she went to the uh, her primary care and the primary care suggested that she see a neurologist and from that point forward her health had gone down and uh, finally in the summer of uh, 17 she was diagnosed uh, with ALS that gives you a little bit of background about it no absolutely thank you Michael for going into that can you speak a little bit about your experience as a caregiver with Suzanne it was definitely challenging. Uh, I own my own business, so it enabled me to be here with her uh, when she needed me. I had a neighbor who was very accommodating if I wasn't able to get home because I pretty much am within about a half an hour of my home when I'm doing my business. So I was able to to, to get home when needed earlier on when it was easier to communicate with Suzanne. Uh, but as, as time progressed, it became more and more difficult uh, to get home when she needed me. And as everyone knows that have experienced it, Suzanne was a prisoner in her own body. Uh, mm. She was shackled, so to speak, because she couldn't move. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a very uh, tough way to live and the quality of life continues to go down. It's, it's, it's a heinous disease. And, uh, you know, the caregiver has, you know, an important part of trying to, to keep some sense of uh, positive outlook, knowing full well that it's, it, you know, the end is way too close, depending on obviously the person's, uh, you know, particular condition. Yeah, truly, uh, you know, I think you nailed it with the heinous disease. There's no adjective that properly captures it, uh, unfortunately. Heinous is, is, I think, about as close as we can get. Michael, as a caregiver, um, as someone who was a caregiver, and as someone who is a, a member of the ALS Focus uh, Patient and Caregiver Advisory Committee, uh, I wanted to pivot to the findings of the most recent survey, which which was about challenges that caregivers face. We talked to Dr. Sarah Parvanta earlier in this episode about those findings, but was there anything that we learned that jumped out to you as kind of an aha moment or kind of validation of what you had gone through in your role as a caregiver? Uh, I can say that there was a, a validation. I, I, I don't know if that's the word that uh, 
I would use. It was just a kind of reinforcement of, of, of the journey, so to speak. I continue to talk about it as a journey because to me, that's the situation that best describes what you go through. You know, you know, just as a you know, quick thing, it's like every day you don't know what that journey is going to be like. Sometimes it can be, you know, one hour can be, you know, significantly different than the next. And so, you know, many of the things that came out of the survey I experienced but I wouldn't necessarily think it was an aha type of thing. And, and Dr. Parvanta does speak to that, that, you know, a lot of this was really known, but this, of course, validates, you know, a right. lot of our, our, our understanding of how caregivers and people with ALS are navigating through the journey. So well said there, Michael. Uh, Michael, can you speak a little bit how, on how the ALS community as a whole is benefiting from the FOCUS program? I think it, it enables a few things. That one, uh, the FOCUS brings together people that are at different stages of of the journey uh which is which is tremendous in order for everybody to feel you know better uh, better understanding when i started with my wife i wasn't in the als association from the very beginning and so i was kind of just kind of doing things myself because we didn't know it was als we were just trying to mm-hmm. Uh, for lack of a better word, muddle through things and, uh, you know, just try to, okay, this, you know, let's give this a shot. When she was having trouble getting in and out of the bed, we, we got a bar, sto- uh, a bar chair and we're lifting that up and down in order. So, you know, it's, it's nice for the people to now to be able to have that, you know, understanding early on. So you can say, okay, there's kind of a roadmap, if you will, of what potentially can happen. Unfortunately, that's a difficult thing as well, because then kind of scares people, because then it's like, this is what's coming down the line. And then, okay, this is one closer step to unfortunately them passing it away. And, uh, you know, that makes it difficult. One of the findings that Dr. Parvanta talked about that I, I also was struck by was the the, the large percentage of, of people who responded who are caregivers who say they're not prepared for what comes next. Uh, as someone who has gone through this journey, what advice would you give a caregiver who's feeling uncertain about, am I prepared to handle what comes next? Uh, the biggest thing I would say is just to... Uh, kind of live in the moment because things change so quickly. Like I mentioned earlier, even if you have like the playbook, so to speak, or whatever you want to call it of the things that are going to happen, there's too, it's too individualized. There might be, you know, so much going on that you can't, you can't really do what's laid out for you. Not to mention, you know, having a, you know, like a career, and trying to, you know, work your career and trying to do that. And if you have children, my kids were older. So, you know, that made it, you know, you just have so much going on and you're trying to juggle all the, uh, the balls. And then the, the, the situation with your spouse, which Suzanne, she didn't want to be a burden. And I hear that oftentimes about being a burden and, uh, you know, it wasn't, she wanted me to put her in a nursing home. 
And I told her that would be more of a burden for me because then I would be going to see her in the nursing home, which it ended up being, I was trying to, obviously I didn't want her to go in the nursing home. She was too young. So it was, I was making it out. It was my wish that she did, which it was, but that made it, made her take the onus of it off of her and put the onus on me. No, that, that's that's well said because Dr. Pravanta also spoke, you know, regarding the, the results of the survey that, you know, the, the feelings that people living with ALS and their caregivers, they worry about each other right. and how the toll of the disease and the caretaking and living with the disease is the toll that it's taking on both of, both individuals. So that, that was well put, Mike. I just wanted to add one part to it. The, I also had, through the ALS, we had uh, the ability to have Biota nursing come in for uh, assistance. And the woman there was wonderful. Her I think it was her father, if not mistaken, had ALS. So she was very in tune to what it was all about and it made it much easier. And in fact, I got, I had a uh, park bench put in right near my house for Suzanne and, and a woman comes occasionally over there and she'll call me and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm headed over there. You want to meet me over there? And my daughter and I had lunch the other day on uh, Monday because she was going back to school on Tuesday. And it just, you know, it's a nice little bench and uh, there's a, a little plaque there and everything. It's, it has the logo of the ALS Association. So uh, I know I'm going off on a tangent, which, of course, I oftentimes do. But uh, it's a journey and it's sometimes difficult to do things. And the ALS Association has been had been wonderful. I didn't get involved with the ALS Association till September and my wife pet my wife was diagnosed in June and she was the one that forced me to to get involved with the ALS Association which I was very happy she was never able to make a meeting but uh, I was very happy that she pressed me to join it well, and, and we're grateful uh, and so fortunate to have you as, as part of the team and part of the work. Uh, you Just going back to your uh, apologizing for going off on a tangent, heartwarming tangents are always welcome on this program. So um, we want all of them. So I appreciate you sharing that. Michael, in your capacity as part of the Patient Caregiver Advisory Council, uh, what can you tell us about some of the topics that might be part of future surveys? Where where does the program go from here in terms of what it wants to figure out next? I know there was talk about, you know, the mobility issues, about wheelchairs and, and the uh, wheelchair accessible vehicles. It's really, you know, there's a lot to... Uh, to understand and to plan for. And, and I think that for, for everyone is, is the biggest thing is, oh, well, I don't need it now. Well, you don't know if two months from now you're going to need it. So my biggest recommendation is to whatever they say you can get, get it immediately. And you can always put it aside. But the, the issue with that, like I've mentioned earlier, is you feel it's closer to the end. So you, you know, you want to be able to keep them walking, so to speak. But mm -hmm. when they're walking, if they're, you know, if they have uh, canes or whatever, and then they fall down, then, then it's like, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that. Those are the areas that, you know, I think are very important with the group to help people understand that aspect of it. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, uh, anything else that you would like to share about your experience as a caregiver 
and or even serving on the committee with our listeners? Uh, the caregiving part is is something that you know you're thrust upon, obviously, and you just have to have an open mind mm-hmm. and, and be willing to be very flexible. You know, you know, you have to, you know, if you want to go out, you have to a lot, a lot more time to, you know, to get everything. And uh, sometimes I, I didn't, and then I would be mm-hmm. rushing, and that would make it you know, more stressful. So it's, it's really important to be flexible and take every day as special because you don't know, you know, Suzanne had a very aggressive form. You know, she died within a year of diagnosis. Oftentimes, you know, people, it's two to five and then Stephen Hawking lived for 50. So, uh, you know, you don't know, but I've talked to, you know, my wife would have never wanted to live that long. She was a kindergarten teacher. She enjoyed that, you know, the interaction, developing the the kids, uh, you know, there was, you know, it was not something where, you know, like Stephen Hawking is, you know, he was all his mind and he didn't, you know, he doesn't need the body part. Whereas, you know, most people aren't that way, not to mention have the uh, availability of funds to do those things. but. Uh, it's just one of those things that, you know, you have to deal with and you do it the best you can and you you try not to doubt yourself because, you know, you, there's certain things that I'm upset that I didn't do. You know, there's there's two things that bother me probably the most. Suzanne wanted a, one of those ancestry, you know, things to look at. You know, I got two for her birthday and she was in the hospital. She was getting a... Uh, uh, baclofen pump put on so i got them and unfortunately by the time it was not that long that she lost the ability really to have the saliva and when i sent it in mm. there wasn't enough saliva for them to uh, come up with it and uh, and the second one without getting too uh, uh i don't know what the word is but i never realized because because with als you oftentimes have problems with your bowels they it's, mm-hmm. it's difficult to move things through. And I wish I had learned about, you know, massaging the, the lower extremity, you know, the, the stomach and area in the intestine area, because she would, you know, go a couple, two, three weeks. And unfortunately, part of it had to do with not eating as much. Mm-hmm. But now knowing that that could have helped because there was a lot of issues and so much pain for her. And that's, that's the tough part is, is the pain, knowing, knowing, you know, they can't always express themselves and what they want. Suzanne had a a Toby, the, uh, the board, uh, as, as things went along, uh, she also had a, uh, I got Alexa, which was wonderful for the interaction. So she could, uh, you know, at the beginning, you know, she was able to ask Alexa to do the different things. So, I know. Once again, off on a tangent, but you know. No, I mean it's it's an important part of, of the conversation. So that the data that that Focus provides can give us a sense of uh, of you know what the numbers are, what you know what what the universal experience might look like, and and anecdotes provide the color and provide the real world examples of of what we're talking about about what those thirty hours a week that the average caregiver spends, what do those hours involve. And just hearing from you um, the amount of care and concern 
for your wife as you're going through this journey as well. It, it really provides a lot of texture to to those numbers and brings them to life. So I really thank you for sharing. Uh, it means a lot to to us and and to listeners. And I uh, really want to thank you for your time today. Sure, it was wonderful. I, I appreciate the opportunity. And like I've told different people that I've encountered. You know, I'm always willing to help out any way I can, whether it's, you know, take somebody over uh, because even transporting can be very difficult with only two people. If you have to mm. park further away. And so if you can have another person help out, you know, I, I'm, I'm open and there's the ALS, uh, the Cherry Hill group that we have. That's very helpful to, to bring the camaraderie together and experience, you know, the happiness and unfortunately a lot of sadness with the group. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for your time today, Michael. Sure. Have a wonderful day. Dr. Bravanta, Michael, thank you so much for your time, for sharing both of your unique perspectives. Of course, Dr. Bravanta running the ALS Focus Program and Michael being able to inform and support and continue it on. It was a pleasure to speak with both of you. Absolutely. And looking forward to having uh, folks from the FOCUS program on down the road as we learn more about the community and their needs to help tailor programs. Survey 3 in the field this summer, uh, Survey 4 being put together. You can go to the ALS FOCUS page to sign up to become a member and participate in this truly important research. That is going to do it for this week's episode. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, please find an opportunity to rate and review us. It is a great opportunity for us to connect with even more people. Connecting ALS is produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.